Well, thank you all for uh, being here today, our last session of 2021. Apologies, I'm coming off a bit of a cold, so um, I promise you I feel fine. Is it too loud? Too loud? Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We'll turn it down just a little bit. <clears throat> so um, today, so the last two weeks, we've talked about two very important disciplines. We've talked about the discipline of gathering, so the commitment we make to gather together, in particular for worship. Uh, and then last week, we talked about the commitment we make to serve, to, to go, the way we would say it. So how to invest in others. And Gene did a great job. If you guys, if you guys don't mind, Gene's not here today. Um, say an extra special prayer for Gene. Gene's part of a, a team, gosh, what's it called? I'm going to forget what it's called. Um, they do disaster response all across the nation. What's it called? Yeah, the CD, our crossing CDRT, but there's a um, oh, Team Rubicon. Team Rubicon is kind of a nationwide version of kind of what we do in our disaster response team here at Crossings. And so Gene is either on his way already or preparing to uh, go to Kentucky. And so he'll actually be on the ground doing, um, um, providing whatever support he can to everybody on the ground there in Kentucky. And so he's either going to Mayfield or Bowling Green. He's not sure which direction they're going to send him. But uh, knowing Gene, he will fix some houses and probably spread the gospel with 500 people while he's there. So just be praying for Gene and all the volunteers and all the people who've been impacted by that. But what a great example of a guy who we talked about committing to serve and just we see what he does a few days after that. So uh, just be praying for him. Today we're going to talk about the third really big commitment we all make, especially as Christian men, uh, the commitment to grow, to cultivate our faith. And I'm going to make it very specific today. Because I think the single most important thing that we can do to grow, to cultivate our faith, is to daily be in the Word of God. And so I'm going to talk about that commitment, and uh, we're going to use a really, one of the most, one of the really um, important stories in the Bible from 2 Kings to really illustrate the point. Uh, but what we put in our body, what we put in, is always going to be a direct result of kind of what comes out. I mean, we all know this. If you think about this intuitively, we all know that if we eat better, we feel better. We all know that if we exercise, we, we are in better shape and, and things, are, things go better. doesn't mean we do it, but we know those things to be intuitively true. If you think about Tom Brady as a great example of this, Tom Brady, the quarterback in the NFL, he's like 86 years old, right? He's going he's gonna to throw for about 9,000 yards this year, pass for 800 touchdowns with three interceptions. I mean, he's just, the guy's amazing. But if you look at his diet, he eats nothing that is bad for him. He doesn't even eat bread, right? The, hence the Subway commercials. But he, he puts nothing in his body that has any type of toxin, any type of bad nutrition. He is so intentional. And as a result... He, he, has, he doesn't age. I mean, he just doesn't age. What we put in our bodies is really, really important. Uh, I learned this lesson the hard way in high school. It was my freshman year. I was playing on the basketball team. It was my second game that year. I'd had a really good first game. Like, I mean, I, like it was a good game. Second game, I go in, and I'm super excited, ready to go play hard. And uh, I wasn't feeling well. I was kind of feeling like I am right now, just, you know, you know, coming off of a cold, doesn't feel great. And, and um, I was like, all right, before the game starts, let me take some medicine just so that I, I feel better for the game. 
and I go out during this game, and I, I'm just awful. I mean, I'm absolutely awful. I can't move my feet. I can't keep up on defense. I, I cannot move. And I remember my dad asking me after the game, he's like, son, what was wrong with you, you know? Well, it turns out that medicine I took before the game was Benadryl, and I had no idea that Benadryl had a sedative impact, and uh, it impacted my play. I made that Benadryl excuse every time I had a bad game as well. But, but what we put into ourselves matters, right? It really, really matters. And so what we're talking about today is putting into ourselves the Word of God. And so to kick off the lesson today, I want you to talk at your tables, and I want you to ask, answer this question. How would you explain what the Bible is to an eight-year-old child? How would you explain, if an eight-year-old child came up and says, what is the Bible, how would you simply explain to them what the Bible is? Take a moment at your tables, talk about that, and uh, we'll come back. All right, well, let's come on back to the group. The reason I ask you this question is I made a big claim, and the, the claim I made is that the most important thing you can do to grow, to grow in your faith, to cultivate your faith, is really being daily in the Word of God. And I really believe that based on my own personal experience. Uh, being daily in the Word of God is just so critically important. But that claim is a big claim, and it has an assumption embedded in its claim as to what is the Word of God. So I always like to do this because I feel like if you can explain what something is to an eight-year-old child, you can explain it to yourself pretty well. And did anyone find it really or a little bit more difficult than you thought it might be to explain what the Bible would be to an eight-year-old? It was a little harder than you thought. And so let's talk about what the Bible actually is. Let's start the lesson today with a foundation here of what the Bible actually is because uh, I get a lot of people who have very different understandings of what the Bible is. So here's what we believe. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, so you see this idea of God breathing into Scripture. So what this really means is, God's Spirit, His own breath, coming down and filling the words of Scripture. The Word of God is of God. It is God's. Uh, in Hebrews 4.12, this is my probably favorite thing to describe the Word of God. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Of the heart. It is living, it is active, and it pierces your soul, right? I mean, I just want you to think about that. That is much more than an ancient textbook, right? Living, active, piercing, right? God breathed. We believe that everything that we read here in the Bible is inspired word of God. And I truly believe that to be true. And we could teach about five lessons on why that is, but just... Go with me for a minute here. That is the basis of what we understand the Word of God to be. The um, Westminster Shorter Catechisms, they're kind of different, slightly different theology than ours, but they, what, what the catechisms are is they put together all of these great questions of re religious questions, and they got a lot of really smart people, theologians and pastors together, to write down some succinct answers to these questions. 
And I find the answers to these questions being really, really helpful to go through and make sure you understand some theological sound answers. So there was one question they ask in here. It says, how is the word of God made effectual to salvation? And the answer is the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And it says, we should read God's word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So if you just summarize everything I've just said about the word of God, we know it's God-breathed. It's piercing of our souls. It's used by God to convict us. It's used by God to convert us. It's used by God to build us up. And it's used by God to comfort us. Right? I mean, and there's all kinds of other places I could go with this. But all I'm really getting at here is it's pretty darn important. Right? It is super critically important. It is more important than Tom Brady abstaining from eating bread. Right? I mean, it is very, very important. Yet... The average Christian, based on the statistics, does not read their Bible, right? Just does not read their Bible. And one, one point I wanted to make here is there are so many things in our life that we know that we should do that we don't do. I know I shouldn't eat dessert, but my mother makes dessert every Thursday night at her house and she gets upset if I don't eat it. I know... I shouldn't eat dessert. I know I should exercise daily, yet I don't do that either. I mean, generations, I mean, I grew up in Kentucky, in central Kentucky, and it was kind of a rule that in central Kentucky, by the age of 12, 13, you just figured out which tobacco product you were going to use. Were you going to be a smoker or a dipper, right? It was just what you, what you did. Thankfully, I didn't, uh, but everybody today knows that smoking is bad for you, right? I mean, no one has any any reservations about that fact, yet we still continue to do it. We do things a lot, or we don't do things a lot, that aren't exactly good for us. What I find, though, is that when that decision moves from a what does it do for me to how does it impact the people I love, that decision tends to change. I know a lot of people who quit smoking, not because of their lungs, but because they learned what the secondhand smoke was doing to their kids, right? I know a lot of people who have children with disabilities who exercise frequently and try to stay healthy, not because they want it for themselves, but they want to be there longer for their kids, right? I know a lot of people who, when you start to shift your thinking from what does it mean to me to how does this impact those I love, they start to make different decisions. What I want you to know today is that this decision that we're talking about, which is the discipline of consuming God's word, it is a much bigger decision than how it impacts you. Right? We see story after story after story in the Bible where failure of leadership impacts the people around them. Bad kings lead people astray time and time again in the Bible. And on the flip side, good kings good prophets, good followers of God, impact people for generations. Generations, right? Your decision of this discipline will impact people for generations. I want you to know how important this is. Let me illustrate this uh, as we go through this lesson. So if you've got your Bibles open, 
flip to 2 Kings, and we're going to start in chapter 21. And I'm just going to, just because I really enjoy doing this, I'm going to do this every time we get to the Kings. Let me give you a brief history lesson of where we are here in the Bible. So we are in the period of the divided kingdoms. So, right? I mean, so you have David, David has Solomon, Solomon does some bad things, Solomon has a son, his son screws it all up. Right? So we see the northern kingdom revolt, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel goes bad very, very quickly, Judah doesn't do much better, uh, but we see the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah kind of you know, all running through this time in parallel. And there's king after king after king, uh, through both lines. Now, at this point in time, we are coming into the time right after Hezekiah. And, and we're talking about the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. He was one of the few good kings of either Israel or Judah. And we, one of the most famous stories of Hezekiah is when the Assyrian Empire had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and they had come through and they had conquered almost every little village in Judah. And they get to the gates of Jerusalem and they pretty much yell over the gates of Jerusalem and say, we're coming for you, you're all going to die. By the way, everybody has died who's gone up against us. Their gods didn't save them. Your God's not going to save you. Don't be foolish. Right? We'll make everything okay. Don't fight back. Surrender. Hezekiah goes to Isaiah, the prophet. They talk to God. God delivers them from the Assyrian Empire. We've, we've told this lesson a few times in here. Just an amazing, amazing story. Hezekiah uh, lives a little bit longer. He gets an extension on his life. Um, he does a very unwise thing at the end of his life, which is these, this smaller power who's emerging in the north is these people called the Babylonians. The Babylonian envoys come to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah shows them all the riches and the glories in the temple of Jerusalem, right? He's, he pretty much, he's bragging. He's showing them all of his gold, all of his silver, all the great things they have. These Babylonian envoys are like, well, yeah, we'll remember this. And so we see the Babylonians uh, start to gain power at that point in time. So after Hezekiah dies we have his son take over. And his son is a uh, man named Manasseh. And Manasseh is a bad, bad, bad king of Judah. And I'm going to have Wayne come up here, if you don't mind, Wayne. And I'm going to have Wayne read, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, from uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, and it'll be verses 1 through 15. What I want you to hear is what Manasseh actually did after he took over from Hezekiah. And then, in verse 10 through 15, you'll see the consequences for his actions. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hesphabah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and the neo. Chromancers. 
He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Thank you, Wayne. Well done. So... Manasseh is not a good king, needless to say. He did a lot of, lot of no-nos all throughout this. And then after Manasseh, thank you again. After Manasseh dies, his son Amon takes his place. And Amon's a chip off the old block as well. He follows right along in the line of Manasseh, only he doesn't last too long. He lasts for about two years, and then people conspire to kill him. Then the people who conspire to kill him get conspired against to get killed. And those people then take Josiah, his little son, his eight-year-old son, Right? And they put Josiah onto the king of the throne of, Jeru- of, of Judah. So Josiah was eight at this point in time. I want you to imagine this time that Josiah is entering into, into this kingdom. It's a time of absolute darkness for the people of Judah. Right? I mean, they've seen the northern tribe of Israel get wiped out by the Assyrians. Uh, they've seen Manasseh just do horrific things all throughout the, the all throughout Jerusalem and Judah. Um, they they've got people getting killed, assassinated, all this going on. It's just a very very dark time. It reminds me of the time, if you go all the way back to the Book of Judges. The Book of Judges says this a couple of times. Uh, it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? Because there was no king in Israel. Whenever you see that happen in the book of Judges, as generation after generation does what is right in their own eyes and quits following God, you see the people descend into chaos, right? Darkness and chaos. And that's really what you see happening right here. The land is dark. The land is chaotic. And you've got an eight-year-old sitting on the throne. Now, here's the cool thing about Josiah. Josiah was a good king. He was a very good king. Josiah must have had some mentors. He must have had some good people around him. But he was a very good king. Uh, he, um, he follows the example of Joash, who was generations before him. And he goes in and he starts repairing the temple. Uh, he's taken all the stuff that Manasseh had put in there and he starts repairing the temple. Uh, he walks in the way of, it says he walks in the way of David. 
It says he's like Joshua and that he does not turn aside to the right or to the left. He follows God. And then when he's a bit older, I think he's going to be in his mid-20s as I recall, while the temple repairs are going on, there's this man named Hilkiah who's the high priest, and he goes to the secretary of the king and he says these words. He goes, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And now we're going to find out, if you do some detective work in this text, you'll find out that it appears that the book that they found was what we know as Deuteronomy. Right? That's, if, if, you, if you go back and read Deuteronomy at some point in time, that's what they would have found in the house of the Lord. But for them to say that they found the book of the law, what does that imply? It was lost. How do you think the book of the law was lost? Sometimes I feel like Mr. Langer over here is in the middle of my notes. I feel like he is spot on. He is exactly right. So how, what does it imply that the book was, was found? It was once lost. How does something get lost? You don't care about it. Yep, dust on the Bible. This thing is found in the temple after more than probably 20 years of repairs of the temple. Don't quote me on that, but it's going to be around there. They find the book of the law. I mean, this thing wasn't just a little bit lost. It was way lost, way lost. Most likely Manasseh probably took it away on purpose, I would assume. I mean, Hezekiah was a good king. Manasseh reigned for a long time, though, a very, very long time. And so we see that the book of loss was absolutely gone. And so one thing I want you to see there is that with the book of the law being lost, not only was it lost to the elite, it wasn't just lost to Manasseh, it wasn't just lost to the kings, the decision of that book being lost impacted the people of Judah as well, right? It impacted more than just the individual at the top of this food chain, right? All of these people are going to suffer consequences. If you keep going in this text, in um, chapter 22, verse 11, we see that the king's secretary reads the word of God to Josiah, and this is Josiah's response. It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And you'll see this a lot throughout the Old Testament in particular. Whenever people go into mourning, when they're grieving, they'll tear their claws. Sometimes you'll see ashes put on them. It's a sign of grieving. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and a number of other people who have difficult names I'm not going to pronounce. And he commands them saying, go inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. If you go back and you read Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy doesn't take very long to read. It's, 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 it, you can do this. You'll read Deuteronomy and imagine Josiah reading that text where it gives all kinds of promises of God, but also loving warnings of God of what happens if you break the covenant. I can only imagine the oh crap moment Josiah had. He's in charge of the people. Or he is leading the people and he's looking at his people going, we have not kept the word of God. And God says, this is what's going to happen. So he's really, really upset. So they go to the prophetess, and she confirms the previous prophecy of God. She pretty much says, look, 
There will be disaster upon the house of Judah, to what Wayne read. There's going to be disaster. But, Josiah, I have seen how you humbled yourself before me, and that disaster will not occur in your lifetime. Right, so Josiah gets this message. And then if you go into chapter 23, you're going to see Josiah respond to God's word in one of the most incredible ways that you'll see in the entire Bible. Josiah goes on this Reformation rampage, like absolute rampage. And if you read through everything Josiah does, it is like he is trying to undo hundreds of years, which really is what he's doing, hundreds of years of disobedience to God. And he's trying to undo it all in one clean sweep. So if you go through, and I'm just going to bullet point what he does, but if you read the text, you're going to find that he gathers the leadership of Israel together right off the bat. He gathers the priests, he gathers the people. It doesn't matter where their class is in society, he gathers them all, and he leads all of them, and he reads the word of God to them. And after he reads the word of God, he recommits to the covenant, he recommits to, the, to being obedient to the word, and they recommit to being obedient to the word. He commands that all the vessels that were made for Baal in the temple be burned, he deposes the priest of all the other gods who had allowed the offerings in the high places to continue. He burned the Asherah poles and he even scatters the dust. And that's a really cool side story I don't have time to get into. But he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. He broke down the high places. He ensured nobody would be able to make sacrifices to Molech again. Molech was the god that required child sacrifices, right, that Wayne read about. So he breaks all of that down. He removed the horses that the king of Judah had, de- had, of Judah had dedicated to the sun. He tore down everything that Solomon had allowed to be constructed. What was the mistake Solomon made toward the end of his, in, end of his life? Just a reminder. Solomon, the great king of all wisdom, the great king of all riches, what mistake did he make? Yeah, he married a bunch of foreign women who led him astray, right? And uh, he, when we say foreign women... He married a bunch of women who worshipped other gods, right? It's probably the better way to say that. And they worshipped other gods, and he allowed that to occur. And he even allowed them to build up, you know, altars in different high places for these people. Josiah goes and he tears those down, right? Then importantly, he restores the Passover. He reads the word of God. He sees what they're supposed to be doing at the Passover, and he restores that, He takes away the mediums, the household gods, the idols. He goes on this incredible, incredible effort to undo the sins of the past. Even though he knows that judgment is coming to Judah, he knows what obedience looks like as he responds to the word of God. And he, not only does he do it himself, he leads his people to do it as well. One thing it says about Josiah in in this text, and wouldn't it be great to have this on your obituary? Right. It says, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him. Josiah was an amazing king, right? An amazing king. Somebody explained to him what God was, who God was when he was eight years old. Somebody had to have. Because what we find with Josiah, and this is what I want you to realize, you are much more like Josiah than you may think. 
See, Josiah had a fertile soil in his heart to respond to the word of God before he ever found that book. All right, we see if you read this text, he started repairing the temple. He started doing the things of God before he had ever read the word of God that had been lost. Somebody had given him enough to give him some sort of direction, even though it wasn't clear to where he started responding and repenting towards God. He had very fertile soil for the word of God to take hold. And I want you all to know that you may not be in the word daily right now, but just by the fact that you have made the decision to be here today, you have fertile soil for the word of God to take hold. You have fertile soil, right? God will grow your faith through his word, through his spirit. You're a lot more like Josiah. When the word of God entered his heart with that fertile soil, we saw just something really incredible happen. He humbled himself before the Lord. He repented. He shared the word with others. He led boldly. He obeyed the instruction of God. Change occurs and generations are impacted. We see what growth looks like right here in the story of Josiah. And it all started with a rediscovery of the word of God. Right? If you go back... And you look and you trace, and this wasn't in my notes, so if I screw this up, it'll be okay. But if, if you go back and you trace the major revivals that have occurred in the history of modern Christianity, or even, even history of Christianity for the last 2,000 plus years, what you'll normally find is that revivals occur not with a bunch of brand new believers, but with a bunch of believers who rediscover the power of the Word of God, Right? Go back and trace it, and you'll see that is what has occurred. And we see incredible change happen right here in the story of Josiah. And Josiah didn't know it at the time, but he would impact generations. The king who comes in after Josiah screws it all up, right? And it's pretty much a downhill slope with the kings of Judah up until the time that the Babylonians complete their conquest, come in and destroy the uh, temple and, and everything. Josiah actually plays a part in this, but it's a separate story. But... The, the kings after Josiah, just, they go downhill. But because the word of God was discovered, other people rise up with the knowledge of the word of God. Even though the people go into Babylon, and even though the people think they're going to be in utter darkness in Babylon, there's prophets like Daniel. There's prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, showing them the way. Right? There is a rediscovery of the word. And after that exile, and they come back in, the Persians allow them to come back into Jerusalem, the people of God, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they become known by a nickname. Does anyone know the nickname they become known by? The people of the book. They become known as the people of the book because they cherish this word so very much. Right? The seeds of what Josiah planted continue out and, re and, and, and just come through for generations and generations to come. What I want you guys to understand is that we have all gone through or are currently going through spiritual phases in our life where we are a lot like Manasseh, right? We, are, we have taken something that is holy and we have replaced everything that is good with our own stuff. Like we've, instead of putting God's word in here, we put idols, we put our own desires, we put our own interests. And we've 
I, I'm almost positive all of you all have gone through that at some point in time. I know I have. And what I can promise you, though, is that if you've gone through that before, that on the other end of that cycle, you got to a very dark place. Because when you replace what is only meant for God with other things, when you put idols on top of where God is meant to be in your heart, you will get to that chaotic, dark place, just like we see at the end of Judges, just like we see here in the Kings, where when everybody goes their own way, when everyone makes their own self God, chaos looms. But we understand the Word of God is very much like a light. And we see in the book of John that light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Right? The Word of God is like bringing a light that permeates through and pushes out darkness. Right? We see it happen with Josiah. We see it happen every time people respond to God's Word through and through in the Bible. We are meant, as Christian men, especially as leaders, we are meant to rediscover the Word of God. And when I say that, I'd say it maybe a little bit differently. We are meant to rediscover the Word of God daily. Daily. We are not meant to one day find it and realize that we had not cared about it for so long that it had been lost. Right? We need to cherish it because it is as powerful and majestic and as important as what I talked about at the very beginning of this lesson. What I want you guys to do today is I hope that we can put ourselves in the shoes, and I don't mean to sound heretical when I say this, but if you can pretend for a moment that I am the high priest Hilkiah, and I am coming to you, King Josiah, and I am saying, I have found the book of the law. It was buried back here, but I have found it, and I hand it over to you. What then will you do with it? Because what I noticed in this text whenever I was reading it and I was going through and I was researching this is Hilkiah, the high priest, never forced Josiah to read the word of God. He never forced him to go through and follow out on all those commands. Josiah made the decision to cherish this word. That was his decision. It is your decision. Right? I've done, what I've tried to do is I've tried to think about what would make it easiest for you guys to follow through on this example as we go into next year? And so for our application today, which becomes our application for all of 2022, on the back table back there, I printed out three different reading plans. And they're all good reading plans. I've done a couple of them before. But they're literally just little tick marks. And you can follow those reading plans and go all year long on the reading plans. Uh, the one on the far right, as I recall, is a chronological reading plan, which means it'll take you all the way through the Bible in a year based on series of events historically, which is a really good way to read the Bible, especially if it's your first time you've ever read the Bible. That's a great way to do it. The other two are a little bit different. They'll give you different slices of the Bible every day. And I would just encourage you all to take one home. Choose one, take it home, pray about it, and then start it, right? Give yourself a head start. And if your one-year Bible reading plan, which you can do in 15 minutes a day, by the way, 15 minutes a day will get you through the entire Bible in a year. But if your one-year Bible reading plan turns into a two-year Bible reading plan, that's absolutely fine. But it's your decision to cherish the Word of God the way Josiah did. Make sense?
If you guys can make those three commitments next year to gather for worship, to be encouraged by your fellow brothers in Christ each and every day, right? To gather in particular on God's day on Sunday and really be encouraged by each other. If you can make that commitment, if you can make the commitment to invest in others as God has invested in you, and you can make the commitment to grow, to be in God's word, it's going to be amazing what God will do with the fertile soil that I know you have. Make sense? All right, let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, your inspired divine word. We know that it is active, it is alive, and it pierces our soul. Father, may you take everything that we may be putting ahead of it. May you strip us of whatever may be keeping us from your word. And will you let it be alive in each of our lives? Will you give us encouragement? Help provide us accountability? Help each of these men to truly appreciate what it is that you've given us. Help me to truly appreciate what it is that you've given us. May we be great examples because we know that we don't impact just us. There may be generations, boys, girls, men, women that we never meet that are impacted by the decisions we make right now. We thank you for that responsibility. We thank you for your blessing. And we ask that your grace would be upon us and would empower us each and every day. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.